Thank you again, Olivia. What a blessing that was. And thank you for being here and sharing that with us this morning, allowing God to work through you to be a blessing to us. Once again, we welcome you to our service of worship here this morning. Uh, as we've been uh, gathered together again here for a couple of weeks, it's so good to see your faces here again. And we do also want to welcome those who are watching on Facebook and listening in on the radio. A uh, couple announcements I do want to share with you this morning. A reminder that Junior and Senior High Backyard Bible Study is this evening at the Bumbar's house at 7 p.m. The roses on the altar today are in honor of Wayne and Karen Keller, who celebrate 51 years of marriage today, and Jay and Kathleen Elsoff, who celebrate 57 years uh, tomorrow on June 8th. So congratulations to both of those couples. We're also excited to have our 2020 graduates here with us this morning, and we're going to have a chance to honor them and celebrate them later on in the service here today. This time I want to invite you to stand with us and uh, for our call to worship this morning, which is taken from Psalm 65, verses 1 through 8. Praise awaits you, our God in Zion. To you our vows will be fulfilled. You who answer prayer, to you all people will come. When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. Blessed are those who choose and bring near to you in your courts. We are filled with the good things of your house, of your holy temple. You answer us with awesome and righteous deeds, God our Savior, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, who formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength. You stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the turmoil of the nations. The whole earth is filled with awe at your wonders, where morning dawns, where evening fades. You call forth songs of joy. I invite you to continue to stand with us and sing our praise song this morning, God So Loved. The words are in your bulletin. Thank you. 
seated. This time I want to invite forward Ms. Maria for our children's chat this morning. Uh, Once again, at least temporarily, we're going to ask the children to remain in your seats during this time. Thank you for being here, Maria. Okay, you need to stay where you are, but you got to stand up because I can't see you when you're sitting down. So I need you to stand up. All right. Remember a couple weeks, months ago, I guess it has been when we played Simon Says? Today we're going to play Mother May I. Have you ever played Mother May I before? So I give you a command, and you before you do it, you have to say, Mother, may I? And I say, yes, you can, or no, you can't. Okay? You ready? Jump up and down three times. Yes, you may. I, I think we need to go back to preschool because that was more than three. Three? But that's okay. Um... Turn around and wave to the people behind you. Yes, you may. (laughs) All right. So when we play Mother May I, I give you a command and you have to ask if it's okay to do it. All right. So when Jesus talked to his disciples, he gave them a simple command. In John 13, 34, it says, I give you a new command. Love each other. You must love each other as I have loved you. Okay? When Jesus talked to his disciples, he gave them that simple command. He said, love each other. Period. You don't have to jump up and down. You don't have to spin around in circles. All you have to do is love each other. Sounds pretty simple, right? Sometimes it is. Sometimes it isn't. In fact, sometimes that commandment is hard because some people are just hard to love. And because we're sinners, we aren't able to love the way Jesus loves, the way Jesus loves each one of us. But when Jesus says, love, and then you ask, may I, Jesus is going to say, through the Holy Spirit, and give you the power to love just as he loves. And so... With everything going on in the world this week, I want you to really think this week about how you can love other people, no matter what's going on, okay? So let's say a quick prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your command to love each other and for sending the Holy Spirit to allow us to be able to do that. Guide us this week to love each other as you love each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. This time in the service, we are going to honor our 2020 graduates, so Pastor Tori's going to be calling them forward by name. All right, so when you hear your name, come up and stand on the step. So Riley Toby, Carly Flutterjohn, Jacqueline Leffel, Dylan Koenig, Lauren Schalicki, Jordan Paul, Noah Holscher, and Thomas Pax. All right. 
wow, it's crazy that we are here this morning. Um, Senior Sunday is really bittersweet uh, because we love celebrating you guys and all of your accomplishments, uh, but it also means that we have to see see you later to some of you as you either go to college or join the workforce or whatever the next chapter in your life looks like. And so it's bittersweet as well, but every year it gets harder and harder to say goodbye. And this year is especially hard because you all, many of you, were part of my first confirmation class that I taught. And so that was a fun, fun year. Um, And we got through it, even though I didn't know quite what I was doing, but you guys were gracious with me. Uh, So thank you for that. You were also the first class that I had the privilege to lead on different trips um, and also to watch you grow and change from middle schoolers into high schoolers into the amazing young men and women standing before me. And so, so proud of you guys. Um, You guys all have experienced a lot of firsts as well. You were the first class to graduate and finish out your senior year in a pandemic. Congratulations. Um, Carly, you and I were talking a few weeks ago. And you jokingly said that you gave up your senior year for Lent. And (laughs) kind of true, uh, because you guys all had to give up a lot, right? These last couple months have been hard. And I know that your senior year didn't end the way that you wanted it to. Um, But, you know, these last few months I've seen you all dig in and press into your faith in God um, and to help grow you in your relationship during this time. And it's been a blessing to see you guys go through this challenging moment um, knowing that the Lord is always on your side and that you just pressed into your faith in him. And so um, you guys should be very proud of yourself for that as well. Uh, And as you begin a new chapter in life, I want to remind you all that life will come with ups and downs. You guys experienced that firsthand over the last few months. Um, And that's okay. That's life, right? Life will have those moments. Um, But my advice to you is don't shy away from the hard moments. Don't try to get out of them. Don't try to um, back away because God is in those moments. He is in every up and down that you will ever face. And so one verse that came to mind as I was thinking about what to say to you guys, was uh, Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. And it says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. So my prayer for you is that as you go through the ups and downs of life that this next chapter is going to bring, that you will press into God, that you will trust in him, that you will lean on him daily, and know that no matter what, he's walking with you every step. It has been such a privilege to walk with you on this journey. I'm going to cry. Um, And as a church, it's been a blessing to see you grow into the awesome young men and women that are standing here. Your journey is just beginning, and I pray that you never forget that the Lord is walking with you and that we are always here for you. And so we love you. Uh, we're so proud of you. And we have a little gift for you to, as you go. Um, it's a little devotional that will help you prepare for the next chapter in life. And so um, please don't be a stranger. I expect to see you all for coffee at some point over the next year, um, and we can catch up on life and see how your first year in the workforce or um, at college was. But we love you, we're proud of you, and we will miss you all so much. Before they go sit down, we want to take a moment and pray for them as a church. Uh, we want, I want to encourage you to be not just listening to my prayer, but pr- be praying with me as I, as I pray for these graduates. Uh, one of the things that God calls us to do, of course, is to be praying 
praying with and praying for each other. And one of the things that we, we can do as Christians is, is lay on hands. And when we pray for someone to, to put a hand on their shoulder, put a hand on their back, you know, just to, as, a, as a physical reminder of, of prayer being, being, being there for them and being with them. Now, we are all trying to social distance, of course, so I don't want to invite you all forward to lay hands on them. That probably wouldn't be a great idea. But I do want to encourage you to take time. And as I pray for them, if you're willing, just extend a hand in their direction as a symbol of that, um, that togetherness as we pray for them uh, this morning. So let's pray together. God, our graduating seniors are here today, and they had their last day of school, and they didn't even know it was their last. Today, we ask you to comfort them during this hard time and wrap your loving arms around them. Fill them with the peace to accept their present circumstances and the strength and determination to persevere for a brighter future. Lead them through this trying time and show us and show them how you can still use it for good. Thank you for your goodness and for your unfailing love, even in the midst of heartbreak. Lord God, help these seniors to remember the lessons they learned uh, during this time. We are never promised anything and may they know to always be grateful for the people and opportunities they have in their lives. I pray that they will see the gift of living in today and to choose joy in everything and encourage others to do the same. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. As you guys uh, head back to your seats, you can grab one of the gifts here. And uh, we are, as a church, going to be taking a moment and singing your confirmation class song, uh, which is How He Loves. So as you guys go find your, grab your grips, find your seat, I encourage you all to stand and worship with us this morning. Are for me. Oh. 
Amen. As we go to the Lord in prayer together, I want to encourage you to remember and keep in your prayers those uh, who've been affected by this ongoing pandemic. Worldwide, 399,543 have lost their lives to COVID-19. And here in the United States, that number is 109,802. Please continue to be prayer in prayer for those that have been affected by this ongoing pandemic. Let's pray together. Lord God, you are good. And even in, even in the midst of pandemics, even in the midst of hard times, we know that that is true when we hold on to that truth. We thank you, Lord, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that your goodness and your love and your character is not dependent upon our circumstances. And so we continue to pray for those that are uh, affected by this pandemic. We pray for healing. We pray for comfort and peace. And, of course, we pray for wisdom for our leaders uh, worldwide, nationally, on the state level, as well as locally, Lord, as, as we continue to navigate and, and step forward, Lord, into, uh, into what uh, this new normal, what, what the next few months are going to hold. So we ask for your continued guidance and wisdom in that area. Lord, we ask for you to be with those who are hurting this morning, for those that are in need of healing physically, uh, for those that are in need of healing emotionally and spiritually, Lord. We ask that you would be the great physician, that your healing hands and your spirit would be upon them, and that in all things, Lord, even in our hardships, you would be glorified. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles with you today, I encourage you to open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning with verse 17 for our scripture reading today. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17, and we're going to read through chapter 3, verse 10. Hear God's word. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person and not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul did, again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you, and that our labors might have been in vain. But Timothy has now come to us, from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly 
that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for the the privilege and the opportunity to stand here now and share from your word. I pray that you would give us, your spirit would give us open hearts and open minds to what you have to say. Uh, May you give me words to speak this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we continue on in our journey through the book of First Thessalonians this morning, uh, we see that Paul continues to express his concern for the believers in that church. The first two and a half chapters of this letter have shown that Paul cares deeply for these people. In the first chapter, Paul commends them for how they received the gospel with joy and became an example for people all over their region. In chapter 2, which we studied last Sunday, Paul took a more defensive tone. He wanted to ensure the Thessalonians that he, as a minister of the gospel, had pure motives and that he loved them and cared for them as a parent would care for their child. And so moving on into our passage today, which bridges these two chapters, chapters 2 and 3, Paul continues to express that concern. If you recall, Paul and his companions were forced to leave Thessalonica quite suddenly. They were ushered out of town in the middle of the night to avoid persecution. And now Paul is describing that separation as being orphaned. Right? That's a pretty powerful analogy if you think about it. An orphan is someone who's been cut off from their family. Children who are separated from their parents by some tragic event, even death itself. Paul is trying to once again communicate his overwhelming concern for these believers. He lived among them. He genuinely cared for them and he poured into their lives. And now he is no longer with them. As you read this passage, it's obvious that there is a certain level of anxiety, even stress in Paul's tone here. It's almost as if he's concerned for their well-being to the point that he's unable to think about anything else. He wants nothing more than to be with them. But something is preventing that from happening. I have to be honest, as a parent, I can can sympathize with Paul's concern here. I want nothing more than for my children to grow healthy and strong and to know, love, and serve the Lord. And that's what I pray for them every night when we put them to bed. And the prayer is kind of catching on too, at least with Jojo, right? Miles isn't quite there yet, right? He tries to pray sometimes, but it's mostly just mumble and jumble of words. Sometimes you pick out Jesus or amen in the middle of it. But Josephine is catching on. She started to pray that same prayer for herself and for Miles. And I, and I love to see that. But as a parent, as much as I pray that my kids grow healthy and strong and to know, love, and serve the Lord, there's, there's still a certain level of anxiety, right, that things could go wrong. I worry for them, for the decisions they'll make when they get older. I worry about the kind of world that they're going to live in. I worry that I'm, I'm not doing enough as a parent right, to prepare them for that future. And I know that many of you feel the same way as well. Right? You have concern for your kids too. It's just, it's just natural for parents to worry about their kids, whether they're young like mine are, or whether they're teenagers, graduating seniors, or maybe young adults and have kids of their own. Right? The worries... And concerns just change as the kids get older and enter into new seasons of life. I know this because my mom still worries about me, and she's not afraid to tell me about that either. We always used to tease her about, about how much she worried, that she worried too much. But now that I'm a dad myself, right, I get it. Well, most of the time I do. As parents, we, we cling on to verses like Proverbs 22, verse 6, that says, Start children off in the way they should go, and even when they're old, they will not turn from it. We hold on to it like it's a guarantee that, and then doubt ourselves when things begin to go wrong or when things don't always work out that way. 
The thing we have to remember is that Proverbs are not promises. Right? They are descriptions about how the world tends to work most of the time. Normally, right, usually, typically, when you raise your kid right, then they will turn out, turn into productive adults. But we all know too well from experience that that's not always the case. Now, I don't bring this up because this is going to be a sermon about parenting techniques or anything like that. The focus of today's sermon is about discipleship during difficult times. But I believe that what Paul is hinting at here is that discipleship is a lot like parenting. Right? When most people think of discipleship, we think of passing on information. And so much of what we typically do as a church kind of revolves around that, right? We send our kids to Sunday school and confirmation, right? We attend Bible studies, right? And and even think about what we're doing now, right? A sermon in one sense is just a glorified lecture, right? And so it doesn't, we can't help but think as discipleship as simply passing on information as a relationship between a student and teacher. That's part of it, but that's not discipleship in its entirety. Over the first couple chapters of Thessalonians, Paul teaches us that discipleship is very much like parenting. Paul is a spiritual father to these believers. Right? And like any father, he's concerned for their spiritual well-being. That's the key to discipleship, right? And especially during difficult times, we must be concerned for the spiritual well-being of others. Quick side note before I dig into what that looks like for us. Notice the jump that I made there. Did you catch it? Right? Paul is their spiritual father and he's concerned for their spiritual well-being. Therefore, we must be concerned for the spiritual well-being of others. You may not see yourself as a spiritual father or mother to anyone. You may not see yourself as a disciple maker, but you are. Right? I warned you last week and I'll remind you again this week and I'll probably keep on saying it because it deserves to be said. Right? We may not all be ministers, but we all have a ministry. Whether you realize it or not, someone looks up to you and someone is encouraged by your faith. It may be your kids or maybe a friend's kids. It may be your spouse. It may be even a friend or coworker or neighbor. But you may, and you may not know who that is off the top of your head, but I can guarantee you that there are people right now who are looking up to you as a spiritual father and mother of sorts. Therefore, we all have a responsibility to be concerned about the spiritual welfare of the people who are around us. Right. Notice here that Paul's main concern is, is spiritual in nature, not just physical or material. He's already talked about how the Thessalonians received the gospel in the midst of suffering and, and persecution throughout these first two chapters. And likewise here, he mentions that suffering is inevitable. In chapter 3, verse 3, he even goes as far to say that they're destined for it. It's not exactly the word of encouragement that I'd want to hear, right? You're destined for trials. You're destined for hardship. But that's what Paul says here. Paul's concern then is for their spiritual well-being. He knows that they're going to face hard times. He knows that life hardly turns out the way that you expect it. And so Paul's fear is that in the face of these difficult times, they would falter or even abandon their faith. And that ultimately his ministry in Thessalonica would have been in vain. The term vain here means empty or, or having no effect. He feared that the substance of their faith was not enough to weather the storm. And this isn't the only time that Paul expressed this sort of concern, right? In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, he pleaded with the believers, saying, As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Right? What is vain faith? What is Paul talking about? What does it mean to receive God's grace or receive faith in vain? 
I believe it's faith that, that dissolves at the first sign of hardship. Right? It's faith that only makes sense when things are going right. It's faith that seems legit on the surface, but really it's hollow on the inside. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells the parable of the four soils. In fact, Tori preached on this passage not too long ago. The farmer one day goes out to scatter some seed, right? And there's four different types of soil that the seed falls on. Jesus says that some falls on hard ground, which is immediately snatched up by birds. And some of it does fall on good soil, of course, which produces a good crop. And then there are those two other soils. Some of the seed falls on rocky soil and it never really takes root. When the sun comes out, the plant dries up and it dies because it didn't have roots to sustain it. The other soil was full of weeds and thorns so that they grew up alongside the plant, choking it out and preventing it from producing a crop. Those two soils, the rocky soil and the weedy soil, are perfect examples of what I would call vain faith. When hardship, opposition, or the temptations of this world come, it exposes the faith for what it truly is, shallow, empty, and lacking any real effect. And so the start of discipleship then is to express a genuine concern for the spiritual well-being of others. But I think part of that, in order to do that, we must recognize the reality of evil in the world. Twice here in this passage, Paul says that the enemy is actively working against them. At the end of chapter 2, he says that Satan is the one who's preventing him from from returning to Thessalonica and and reconnecting with the believers there. And then in in, uh, the first part of chapter 3, all right, we see that Paul's fear is that the tempter, again a reference to Satan, is attempting to draw the Thessalonians away from the faith. And so there's a few observations I want to make here for us this morning based around that idea. First is that it's important that we recognize that evil is real. Right? There, are, there is an enemy who works to oppose God and his kingdom. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8-9 through 9 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the enemy of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. See, the enemy is real. Scripture doesn't beat around the bush about that. So the enemy is real, and he seeks to destroy us, but we must never give him too much power either. Scripture, scripture teaches us that Satan is real, but it also teaches us that he's already been defeated. Jesus conquered him when he died on the cross and when he rose again. So we must not give him too much credit. We need a healthy and balanced understanding of the enemy. C.S. Lewis Lewis famously described the two mistakes that people often make when it comes to thinking about the enemy. One is that we give him too much credit and blame him for everything that is wrong in the world. On the other hand, some people ignore him completely and do not believe he exists. Both viewpoints are, are on opposite ends of the spectrum, but both of them are mistaken. The enemy is real, but he has been defeated. That's what we must remember, right? Scripture teaches us that the one who is in you, speaking of the Holy Spirit and the lives of believers, the one who's in you is greater than the one who's in the world. And then if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. You know, praise God that we have that kind of assurance in Scripture. But we need to acknowledge, and part of, part of growing in your faith, part of being discipled during difficult times, acknowledging the reality of evil in the world. The second observation is this. Satan often works through ordinary means. And here's what I mean by this. Everyone experiences hardship, right? No one escapes that in this life. It's normal and expected, especially for believers in Christ. We live in a broken world and we can all see and feel the, the effects of it. You may experience job loss, financial instability, relationship problems, failing health, etc. 
Those are all expected, unfortunate, but expected aspects of life. What Satan loves to do is he takes those experiences and he twists them into spiritual attacks. Paul tells them to expect hardship and trials, but yet he fears for their spiritual well-being. It's because he knows that the enemy has a way of taking those ordinary events, as hard as they may be, and planting seeds of doubt in our minds. He says things like, look at everything that's happened. Do you think God really loves you? Does he even care about you? Right? Those are the kind of things that Satan whispers in our ear as we experience difficulties and hardships. Right? Think about the Garden of Eden. The enemy, the serpent, entered the scene and whispered into Eve's ear. And there were three things he did, right? He questioned the validity of God's word. Did he really say that to be true? He doubted the truthfulness of God's word. Oh, certainly you won't die. And ultimately, and also, excuse me, he, he questioned God's motives and intentions behind his word. A lot of time has passed since the Garden of Eden, but the enemy's tactics remain the same. And so the third observation then, we need to recognize evil is real. We need to recognize that the enemy often uses ordinary means to to attack us and distract us. And third, we must know and believe that we are not helpless in the face of evil. Let me say that again. We are not helpless in the face of evil. For that whatever reason, Paul wasn't able to go to the Thessalonians. He, he believed that the enemy was preventing him from going, but he doesn't really go into detail about what exactly stopped him. But he didn't give up. He wasn't helpless. He couldn't go, but apparently nothing was stopping Timothy from going in his stead. And this may seem simple and it may seem like an afterthought, but we must remember that in the face of opposition, in the face of evil, we're not powerless. We can always do the next right thing. Right? For, for Paul, it was sending Timothy when he couldn't go himself so that Timothy could be an encouragement to the believers there. Right? We can put one foot in front of the other and move in the right direction, even if it is small steps that we have to take. And it ultimately does make a difference. Right? Look what's happening right now in, the, in our nation with the Black Lives Matter movement. People all over this country are standing up and saying, enough is enough. They're pushing back against the evil of systemic racism and the mistreatment of people of color. And the protests and the national conversation around this issue are good things and they're long overdue. We cannot and should not let this moment just slip away. All right, something needs to change. What can you do about it? All right, what can, what can you do when confronted with the reality of evil in this world? You can do the next right thing, right? You can speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. In Proverbs chapter 31, oh, I took out my bookmark apparently. In Proverbs chapter 31, we get this encouragement. 31 verses 8 and 9 is a speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. You see, the, the movement, the Black Lives Matter movement may not affect you personally. It may not affect you in New Knoxville, Ohio. But the reality is that it affects a lot of people. And it does affect us whether we see it or not. And so we have a responsibility to speak up, right? We have a responsibility to, to speak truth and, 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 and ground that truth in God's word whenever we can. We must come alongside those who are hurt, who are marginalized, who are abused and speak up for them. We are past the point when we can remain silent about this matter. As Christians, we have to speak up for those who are hurting, right? We have, we have to seek the truth and do justice in all things for all people. 
As the prophet Micah said, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. See, whether it's this issue or another issue that will inevitably come up, the reality is we will confront evil in this world. We'll face opposition, both ordinary physical opposition as well as spiritual opposition. And we, but we cannot let that stop us and prevent us from what God is calling us to do. We cannot let that stop us from seeking his kingdom, uh, seeking for his kingdom to come and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we must seek God out. We must do what we can as Christians to speak truth, to speak hope, to speak love, especially for those who can't speak up for themselves. Discipleship during difficult times then is also about encouraging and strengthening believers in the midst of their trials. That's ultimately why Paul sent Timothy to the Thessalonians, right? He wanted the believers there to be built up so that their faith would remain strong. We all need that, don't we? We all need a bit of encouragement every once in a while. We all need someone to come alongside us, especially when we're going through hard times. I believe one of the enemy's greatest weapons is isolation and loneliness, right? That's why church is so important. That's why what we do here on Sunday mornings and throughout the week is so important. And that's one of the things we were missing during the pandemic was that ability to gather together as believers and be encouraged by one another. I was just speaking with someone before the service began and, and they mentioned that I think the word they used was that, you know, the radio and Facebook are good things, but they're no real substitute, right? For, for the real fellowship that you get when you gather together with other believers, and so though we still have to take precautions and we still tape off every other pew and, and, and try to socially distance from one another, it is still good when God's people gather together because, because it's, that, it's that connection, it's that relationship that, that helps us and encourages us, especially when hard times come. Right, that's why we felt it was essential to resume in-person worship services a few weeks ago. Right, we knew there was a risk. Right? We know the pandemic isn't over. But we also know the importance of gathering together as a body of believers for worship. We can encourage one another and support one another, even from six feet away. Right? The word encourage here in this passage means it means comfort, urge, advocate. Paul uses it twice, once to describe the reason why Timothy was sent to the church, and also again to describe the effect of Timothy's return on Paul and his companions. The root word is the same as the word used the word that Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, verse 16. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, or sometimes it's a helper, to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. I believe the connection there is intentional. It's often through other people that the Holy Spirit does his work. We're encouraged, we're strengthened, we're urged on, we're comforted by the Holy Spirit's work through people. Right, that's why this idea of, of Jesus and me theology just doesn't work. Yes, faith is personal, but it's not meant to be private. Faith is meant to be lived out in the context of community where you can encourage others and be encouraged by people. This is all the more important during times of crisis like we're experiencing now and have experienced over the last few months. Notice here, too, that the encouragement went both ways. Paul and Timothy sought to encourage the disciples, but they themselves were encouraged by them. Discipleship really is a two-way street. Talk to any Sunday school teacher and they'll tell you that it's true. You teach others, you pour into them, you encourage them, but at the same time you learn and you are encouraged and you are blessed by them. 
When I was in both college and in my graduate studies, I worked at various times as a graduate assistant. And I have to say, I learned more and gained a better grasp on the material when I had to teach it to someone else than when I was simply a student in the classroom. Right? There's something about needing to turn that around and, and share that with someone else that helps you to get a better grasp on it yourself. That's what Paul is getting at here. He loved and cared for the Thessalonians, and he was blessed in return. He was filled with joy. The Lord will reward him for his ministry. Notice that talks, Paul talks about this reward, this crown, the joy, the hope that they have standing in the presence of God because of the Thessalonians. Right, the crown mentioned here, right, it's, not, um, it's not meant to be a, a royal crown or some sort of signal of, of status. The word there for crown is actually a reference to an award that uh, athletes would receive upon winning a race. And Paul uses that analogy elsewhere in Scripture too about winning, about, about striving to, to run like you're running for a prize. Crown is awarded, however, to the winner of the race. It's given for a job well done. I believe in eternity when we've completed the race, believers will be rewarded. It won't be based on how much money you have or how, how large your, your bank account is or, or what promotions you've earned at work. You'll be rewarded for the kingdom impact you had. Everything in this world will pass away, right? But the work that we do for the kingdom, the work that we do for the Lord will last forever. One day I believe that we'll all stand before the Lord, we'll stand before Jesus, and we'll be able to see, maybe for the first time, the impact that we've had on people. Just imagine that, standing before Jesus and Him you know, receiving the well done, my good and faithful servant, and being able to see the impact that your life and your faith and your ministry had on other people. That'd be amazing. I think so much of that today goes unnoticed. We don't realize the kind of impact we have on people. We don't realize how much we, we've encouraged others by, by a kind word or by, simply by our example. But one day we will see that. One day we'll, we'll see the kind of kingdom impact that our lives had, and, and we'll be rewarded for that, it says, with a crown. That's the hope, right? That's the joy. That's the reward that Paul is talking about here. In that moment, right, in that moment, I believe that we'll join with the elders in the book of Revelation then and lay our crowns at the throne of God because he's the one ultimately that deserves the credit and the glory for the good things we've accomplished in this life. So we can have an impact, right? We, we, can, we can make a difference in someone else's life simply by encouraging and being there with them. Right, and, and we may not see it, we may not understand it now, but it is there. And one day we'll, that will be our joy and our hope when we stand before the Lord's presence. You know, imagine that, I just, imagine the joy that comes, that can come with standing before the Lord and knowing that what you did, the kind of life you lived, the, the words that you spoke and the example that you set was what made a difference for someone else in their life. And that is because of you, because of your example, because of your faithfulness, because of your encouragement, that they too can experience the joy and hope that we have in the Lord. I mean, what, what greater reward for, for ministry, what greater reward for, for following Christ than to know that your life had an impact on someone else, that someone else experienced the grace of Christ because of what you did for them. So discipleship is about encouraging and supporting others, but it's also the reality is we are encouraged and supported ourselves too. And finally, discipleship during difficult times is about creating disciples, not just converts. 
Paul's desire for the church is that they continue to grow and be built up. He wants to supply, he says, what they're lacking. He knows that they aren't perfect, right? In fact, he goes on to spend the rest of the letter, which we'll be discussing in the coming weeks, addressing some of those very issues. The reality is none of us are perfect. None of us have arrived. None of us are there yet. And I'll be the first one to, to let you know that's true for me, too. All right, we are all works in progress, but that's okay. All right, we don't need to be perfect in order for God to love us. The gospel teaches us that God loves us, and it is through his love that we are being made perfect. The work of the gospel does not end at salvation. The gospel continues to shape and inform our lives from the moment we first trust in Christ until the day we stand before him in glory. All right, God is the one who saves and sanctifies his people, and he is... He's the one who accomplishes it, but we have a part to play. In his sovereignty, in his goodness, in his grace, and in his mercy, God uses people like you and me to encourage others, to supply what is lacking in someone else's spiritual life. Just as the Holy Spirit uses individuals to encourage others, he also uses individuals to teach and guide others in the faith. So who are the people that God has placed in your life to supply what is lacking for you? Thank God for them and be intentional about seeking out their guidance. Sometimes we suffer from blind spots. We think we have it all figured out. We think we've got a good grasp on how we're doing spiritually. But a good, trusted friend can help us see what we are unable to, speak, unable to see. They can point out our blind spots for us. On the other hand, we have to ask ourselves, who are the people that, you, that we, that you can pour into? Right? Who are the people that you can invest in and guide them in their walk with the Lord? Remember, each of us has someone in our life that's looking up to us. And so what practical steps can you take to disciple them? It's important to be able to assess yourself spiritually, to recognize what is lacking. It's one thing to, it's one thing to say you're not perfect. It's another thing to get an accurate, accurate picture of what's really going on and where you are on your journey with Christ. I believe there's two things. I want to share these with you as we close. Two things that give us an accurate picture of, of our spiritual life so that we can know what is lacking. One, of course, is God's word. James 1 describes scripture as a mirror, right? We look into it and it gives us an accurate picture of where we're at spiritually. It will reveal the areas of our lives that need to change. and It'll help us to notice the areas where Christ is indeed shining through. And we must be people of the word. We must be willing to allow God's word first and foremost, above all the other competing voices of our culture to have priority and shaping our lives and perspectives. So God's word, first and foremost, gives us a, a, an accurate picture of where we're at. The second thing then, the second thing that usually gives us an accurate picture of our spiritual state are times of crisis. But our true nature is revealed when tragedy strikes. It shakes our foundations and brings to the surface what is really there. Paul feared that hardship would prove the Thessalonians' faith was in vain. All right, the COVID-19 pandemic is not over, but it seems that at least we're coming out the other side of it. The last two or three months have been hard on a lot of people. What was it like for you? All right, more importantly, what did it reveal about your faith? What is God trying to teach you? It would be a shame to go through everything that we've experienced unchanged. Right? It would be a shame to go through all that we've been through in the last few months and come out the other side the same person you were that entered. 
I believe God wants to use this time in order to bring light to what is truly important. Our relationship with him, growing in grace and sharing that with others, takes precedent over all else. As we close today, I want to remind you of a simple but powerful prayer in the Psalms. I've used this on several other occasions, and it's, it's a great resource for, for self-assessment. It's a plea for God to search us and bring to light anything that is wrong or sinful and to lead us in the right direction. And so let's close in prayer with these words from Psalm 139, 23 through 24. I invite you to, to pray this prayer with me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Teach me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. Amen. As we close our service today, I invite you to stand and sing with us uh, our closing hymn, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee. Bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. You may go in peace.